Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 143, Politics and Religion in Late Antiquity, Part 1, Geopolitics, Empire, and Rabbinic Judaism. In this two-part episode, we thought it would be a good idea to pause for a moment and take stock of where we are. The podcast has arrived near the end of the eventful third century, but there are a lot of loose threads churning around in the Roman world. We've been paying a lot of attention to the narrow, elite world of late Platonism, but we know that in the background, on a less elite and narrow basis, major new religious movements like Mithraism, Manichaeism, and Christianity are spreading and interacting. Not to mention more fringe religious movements, such as the people behind the Hermetica, people behind the Gnostic tractates, and so on and so forth. Then there are the Jews. We haven't really checked in with the Jews as such since episode 49 of the podcast. What has been happening with the Jews since the destruction of the temple in the year 70 CE and the suppression of the Bar Kokhba revolt in the early 2nd century? How are the Jews dealing with the rise and spread of Christianity and other offshoot religious movements like some of the Gnostic texts we've discussed in the podcast, or rather the movements behind those texts? In coming episodes, we're going to explore the awkward period of Jewish history when the Second Temple period shades off into the Rabbinic period, in which we still are, incidentally, today. But in order to do that, it might be good to cover a few basics about, for example, what Rabbinic Judaism is, and when and how it arose, and so forth. Now, this isn't the history of mainstream rabbinic Judaism podcast, or really the history of mainstream anything podcast, but it behooves us to understand the basic mainstream building blocks of the exoteric religions, especially Judaism and Christianity, within which the esoteric currents we're studying grew and evolved. We will also, in coming episodes, be looking at the rise to imperial power of Christianity, history's most successful offshoot of Judaism, with Islam as the close second to be discussed when we get to the 7th century. Constantine the Great's reign over the Roman Empire started in the year 306 CE, after all, just a few years after the beginning of the 4th century. And by the end of his reign, Christianity had gone from recently persecuted illegal movement, superstitio, according to most Romans, to official creed of the empire smashing temples and taking names. Surely a lot of changes must have been happening between the writing of the New Testament texts in the first century CE and the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in the early 300s, such that what started as a fringe Jewish cult could be instated as the official imperial cult of the empire. Some background will be helpful here as well, and part two of this episode is devoted to the intersection between the Christian and the political in late antique Rome. Of course, the downfall of paganism, so-called, is a powerful aspect in the imaginary of many modern esoteric religious movements, from neo-paganisms of various flavors to all manner of romantic and nationalistic reimaginings of the past. So it's good to get the historical basics right uh, before we tackle the reimaginings. So next time, we'll also talk about the invention and simultaneous demise of ancient so-called paganism. But we also want to contextualize 
esoteric currents within Christianity itself. In subsequent episodes, we shall discuss a number of crucial late anti-Christian texts and movements, which lie at the root of many aspects of the esoteric within Christianity. Things like, but not limited to, the pseudo-Clementine literature, various apocalypses and testaments, 4th century originism, the pseudo-Dionysius, the Cappadocian Fathers, and so forth. Paracanonical material sometimes, which is, in a sense, legitimate Christian stuff, or like the Enoch literature, which has always exerted a strong esoteric influence on mainstream Christianity, even while some of it remains beyond the pale of openly accepted doctrinal material, except, of course, in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, where the books of Enoch are canonical. And we're also looking forward to exploring the weirder side of extreme Christian asceticism in late antiquity. We want to cover a number of cool developments in magic, astrology, and occult sciences among both Christians and Jews in our period. As seasoned listeners will be unsurprised to hear, but as might surprise many a fundamentalist Christian out there, magic and divination have been going on in the Abrahamic faiths for as long as we have records of the Abrahamic faiths, and late antiquity provides us with a very rich dossier of monotheist addressative practice, astrology, and so forth. So before we get to any of this stuff, we should pull the focus back and reacquaint ourselves with some basics of religion and politics in later antiquity, so as hopefully to be better able to situate the material we've been covering lately in the podcast, as well as the material to come. When we get to the great Julian, also known as the emperor, we shall be diving back into politics in a big way. It's not often that you get an emperor who is also a theurgic esoteric initiate and who formulates his policies accordingly, after all. And we need to do justice to the man in all aspects of his multifaceted career. So this present two-part episode will also provide some crucial background for that more detailed discussion of Roman internal politics of religion in late antiquity. Before we even get to the Jews, Christians, Manichaeans, and Mithraists, Let's talk basic geopolitics for a moment. As you know, gentle listener, but as you might appreciate a brief reminder of, I know I can always use a helpful reminder as to some dates and such, such things. Things have been happening in the Roman Empire's great political rival, the Persian realm, for some time. So let's talk about that for a second. We call this state the Persian realm in a kind of general and bogus way. What we're actually dealing with is this in extremely abbreviated form. You had this giant empire, often known as the Persian Empire, but known to scholars as the Achaemenid Empire. Alexander had conquered the Achaemenid Empire, and the Seleucid or Seleucid successor state had then ruled what we call the Near East and Persia Iran for several hundred years. So far, so good. The Seleucids had to deal with loads of difficulties, including Jewish revolts, which we covered back in episode 49. But what ultimately proved fatal was the eastern pressure of a new regional power, the Parthian state growing in the east, and in the west, the late Republic of Rome, which was busy gobbling up the eastern Mediterranean in the first century BCE. So the Seleucid Empire, the Macedonian-ruled uh, Near Eastern state, was basically chopped in half and absorbed, uh, giving Roman Empire abutting the vast Parthian state. 
the Parthian state roughly corresponding to the original Achaemenid super-empire in location. By the middle of the first century BCE, the Seleucid state is no more. Okay, the Romans and Parthians then go on to fight a lot for a few centuries. If Roman armies in the early imperial centuries are engaged in suppressing tribal peoples who don't live in cities, it's generally along the Rhine frontier or in Gaul or in Britain or in North Africa. But if they are fighting pitched set-piece battles against a trained army with relatively equal numbers to their own, it's always a war on the eastern frontier against the Parthians. Until, that is, the Parthians themselves fall in the year 224 CE. So on the cusp of late antiquity, we might say, not to the Romans, but to a coup led by another Iranian Persianate-speaking group, the Sasanians, who will now control more or less the same region as the Parthians controlled. That's modern-day Iran, Iraq, the Levant, with some territories further east, and various client kingdoms on the borders. Armenia is always an important client, kind of flipping and flopping between Rome and uh, the Sasanians. They're going to control this region from the year 224 CE until their fall to the Islamic invasion in the year 651. So throughout late antiquity, in the Near East, in other words, the Sasanians are in charge. Thank you, Parthians. You can go. Now, these guys, the Sasanians, are important to the history of Western esotericism in a number of ways. First of all, the border between Rome and the Sasanians, which runs sort of down the middle of what we call the Near East or the Levant, it shifted all the time based on wars fought between the two powers, but it never shifted all that much. The Romans would have a victory and they'd push back into Mesopotamia for a while garrison some border posts then the sasanians would push back 30 years later and they would garrison a bunch of border posts in what had previously been roman territory and so on but this border was anyway never really a cultural border only a political one thus aramaic speaking jews existed as a continuum on both sides of the border and a lot of the formative rabbinic culture that we're going to talk about in this episode takes place not in the roman world but in the sasanian as we shall see, this is the Sasanian world for political purposes, but for the Jews, they probably thought of themselves as part of Jewry or something like that. Uh, Mani, the prophetic founder of Manichaeism, was actually born in the newly Sasanianized empire, as we discussed in our interview with Jason Badoon in episode 123. Manichaeism is a crucial part of the story of Western esotericism, but as a religion, it wasn't exactly Western. If anything, the Manichaean heartlands would end up being Central Asia and even East Asia and China. But this is only arguably because the Christians in the Roman Empire drove them out from the Roman realms after hundreds of years of persecution, a story which is going to pop up here and there in the episodes to come. The story of what might have been the first true world religion, Manichaeism, but which never quite made it. We shall also see that many interesting forms of Christianity, and in particular, a crazy flourishing of monastic and ascetic culture, took place right along the border between the two superstates, and really belongs to a Christian culture which was more or less transnational in the same way the Jewish culture was. Now, another kind of oblique way in which the Sasanians are important for the story of Western esotericism 
is that while they largely pursued the usual Near Eastern policy of tolerating any religion that didn't mess with state power or tax collection, they did undergo a rather typically late antique move toward A, a state religion, and B, a rejection of statue worship and the more iconophilic type of religion we associate with traditional Mediterranean forms, temple sacrifice, this sort of thing. They were against this. The Sasanians, in fact, codified and made official their form of what is nowadays known as Zoroastrianism, a religion based on very ancient Persian traditions, originally oral material, which was written down quite late, in fact, associated with the mythically ancient sage Zarathustra, whose teachings were already important in the Achaemenid period, that's the earliest Persian empire, but whose religion now became a kind of imperial creed or cult. Zoroaster, the Greek form of the name of Zarathustra, as we have seen in a number of episodes already, had the reputation in the Greco-Roman sphere of an ancient sage, maybe even the most ancient sage, but also as a kind of perennial other. He was associated with the Persian Magi, Magoi, in many Greek sources, in some kind of vague way. They're both Persian, he's probably a Magos, this sort of thing. And hence, Zoroaster's name is associated with the double-edged idea of Magia, magic. Always frightening, but also always fascinating. Now, Zoroastrianism is famously dualist, positing an ages-long conflict between the good god, Ahura Mazda, the god of light, and his evil counterpart, Ahriman, the god of darkness, being waged in the world and in the hearts and minds of believers, who are meant to be sort of soldiers on the side of the good god. Obviously, this dualistic current could not help but influence all kinds of thought in its cultural sphere, such that Mani's take on the esoteric Christian teachings he received as a child shows some blatantly dualistic traits, which I feel he probably picked up from this source. We don't even need to posit direct exposure to Zoroastrian teachings here. Since we think money was raised in an extreme Christian community, which was probably at least somewhat cut off from the rest of society. But I would suggest that you probably just absorbed dualist ways of thinking from the water in Sasanian Persia, right? But we might want to cast our net wider and consider the whole dualistic turn of late antique monotheisms. You know, what does a monotheism need a devil for? Remember the Middle Platonist Celsus's attack on Christianity attacking them for positing the existence of a devil. And, you know, we discussed that in episode 99. And think of all the evil daimones we've been seeing popping up among Platonists like Porphyry. Follower of Plotinus like Porphyry has no reason to posit evil anything, really, except maybe evil matter. But to posit evil daimones kind of working for the dark side is a very late antique thing. I suspect, while this cannot be proven, that there is a general trend toward thinking in terms of active agents of good and evil in late antiquity across the spectrum of Roman religions and even philosophy. And of course, if we look at our Nag Hammadi dossier, we find really, really strong dualistic uh, discussions of good and evil. And that this trend must have something to do, in part and only in part, with the revival of strongly dualist Zoroastrianism 
as the state-sanctioned cult of the Sasanian Empire. That's me speculating on grand narratives which are absolutely not subject to proof, but I think it cannot but be significant that there's this gigantic, very powerful neighboring empire to the Romans who are dualists, right? At any rate, there's our geopolitical situation in late antiquity. Two empires alternately at war and maintaining uneasy truces, which either side is liable to break if they see an opportunity, but never really achieving that much through their ongoing warfare and arguably fatally weakening themselves in the process. When we get to the rise of Islam, we're going to see just how much this back and forth warfare could uh, weaken an empire. For now, we should just be aware that when, for example, we talk about the late antique Jews, Manichaeans, or Christians, we're often talking about people living in the Sasanian realm, in the Roman realm, or a bit of both. So the West, as in Western esotericism, especially in late antiquity, is already spreading quite far into, well, the East. Now, let's turn to our first Abrahamic group that we need to kind of catch up with. The ones who started this whole monotheistic thing, I refer, of course, to the Jews. We need to discuss the rise and development of rabbinic Judaism. In episode 49, we discussed Second Temple Judaism in a very cursory way. This was the period when the Jews really came onto the stage of the nascent Western world. It is the Second Temple period which gives us some of the key documents of Jewish and Christian esotericism, namely the apocalypse genre generally, as we discussed with John Collins in episode 50, and the Enochic material in particular, which we discussed back in episode 51. It's not that the production of apocalypse is stopped once the Second Temple was destroyed in the year 70 CE, far from it, as we shall see, but its roots lie in the Second Temple period, as well as the roots of the idea that God will in some way end the current world order and redo the whole show, right? There's a reason that this kind of expectation of a new dispensation is called apocalyptic thinking, because it appears initially to us in texts known as apocalypses or revelations. Now, Christianity is itself an offshoot of Second Temple Judaism. Not only in the obvious sense that Jesus lived, whoever he was, before the fall of the temple, but in that it has messianic end times expectations and a lot of other characteristics that we associate with, for example, the kind of Jewish thought found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth. So where are the Jews in the Roman period between the destruction of the temple and say the end of the third century where the podcast is now well first of all the general political situation jews are everywhere in the roman empire not literally everywhere but there's really a lot of them they're very spread out and the the jewish diaspora reaches to pretty much the ends of the known world both on the roman side and on the sasanian side especially in big urban centers like rome and alexandria scholars try again and again to estimate the kinds of numbers of Jews we're talking about, but maybe something like in the 50 to 100 thousands um, in places like Rome and Alexandria. So Jewry is not located in the Middle East anymore, even though there is a huge uh, center of Jewry in the Middle East. Now, Jews were always more or less tolerated by the Romans 
Sasanians on a governmental level as a matter of policy. There was a lot of ill will, what you might call anti-Semitism, afoot in the Roman world, certainly partly because of the three major Jewish revolts against Roman rule, which occurred first from 66 to 70 CE, the so-called Jewish war immortalized by the Romanized turncoat Jew Josephus. Then there was the Kitos war between 115 and 117 CE. And lastly, the Bar Kokhba rebellion from around 132 to 136 CE. Now this last revolt, which arose in the Roman province of Judea, was led by one Simon Bar Kokhba, who either claimed to be the promised Messiah or was considered to be so by at least some of his followers. Now, the expectation of this Messiah figure who's going to come is another example of uh, an idea which arises in the Second Temple period. Nevertheless, despite all these wars, the Romans on a government level basically followed the lead of the earlier Hellenistic kingdoms, which had large Jewish populations, which while perfectly willing to visit savage violence on any group of Jews that they thought had crossed a line, and that was usually a very concrete political line, they generally accorded the Jews the official status of uh, recognized ethnos in Greek, or in Roman terms, of a religio licita, a recognized legal religious tradition, which meant that they were allowed to do what they did religiously. What they did was not, for example, magia or Um, other illegal activities. Now, here's an interesting thing. Normally, if a Roman general had a major victory over a natio, the Roman idea of an ethnic group, the general would get a title like Scipio Africanus. Everyone's heard of him. This doesn't mean Scipio the African. It means Scipio, the guy who slaughtered the Africans to the point where they ceased to be a threat to Rome. Similarly, we find Roman generals with honorary titles like Germanicus, the guy who killed a bunch of Germans, Gothicus, the guy who killed a bunch of Goths, and so forth. Now, despite the three fairly major campaigns against various Jewish local uh, rebel factions that we've just mentioned, we never get a Roman calling himself Eudaios, the guy who killed all the Jews. The Romans chose instead to frame these victories, not as defeats of the Jews as a people, but simply as local peacekeeping exercises. The reasons for this are surely complex, but must have included the fact that there were many, many thousands of Jews in major centers like Rome and Alexandria. And we, again, we don't know the figures, but we're talking very sizable populations. And even if you did hate them and were suspicious of them and thought of them as foreign and un-Roman and all the rest of it, they did have this reputation for fighting like hell if pushed to it. And on the other hand, a reputation for being quite willing to get on with the Roman regime if you didn't push them. So why push them? So the Jews enjoyed what we might call an uneasy toleration with ethnic privileges in the Roman Empire. And we'll see a concrete example of this in the second part of this episode when we get to the question of persecution of Christians. Now, I'm glossing over some pretty heavy anti-Jewish violence which flared up from time to time in different parts of the empire. But most of this was unofficial and had to do with um, different kind of neighborhoods and tribal-ish groups in cities fighting each other. Um, And in cases like this, as in Alexandria in the first century, the Jewish community would often appeal to the Roman regime for defense against mob actions, as we saw back when we discussed Philo. So that's the situation of 
the Jews in the Roman Empire. Until Romanitas, the, the, the Roman citizenship, is granted to all free denizens of the empire, which is something we'll talk about next time, the Jews are not Roman. However, they are seen as a, uh, a recognized and understandable part of the fabric of the empire. Now, what is rabbinic Judaism? So this is important, and we're going to oversimplify to the max here. So everything in this next section of the episode is crucial for understanding the history of Judaism going forward. In the Second Temple period, local groupings of Jews developed, and these ended up being called by the Greek name synagogues, gathering places. So synagogues, little congregational groupings, sometimes at least, came to have a dude or dudes known as a rabbi, ravi, a teacher. Long story short, very long story short, when the temple fell and Jews were cut adrift from their crucial sacrificial ritual, which was at the heart of the whole religion, or at least the dominant version of the religion in hindsight, because we know a lot about other groups of Jews in the second temple period who seem not to have bought into the central temple cult as the only way Jews could connect with their God. But anyway, in this sort of, in retrospect, mainstream form of, of Jewish religion, when the temple was burned down in the year 70, this major discourse within Judaism had to find a way of going on. One group we know responded with a new thing, eventually called Christianity. And Christianity came to be organized with small congregations overseen by, well, an overseer, an episkopos, whence the English term bishop. The synagogue community or congregation, headed by its rabbi, evolved slowly but surely into something kind of similar to the Christian congregation with its bishop. This is congregational religion centered around a learned authority figure rather than primarily sacrificial worship based in a temple or temples. Note that both in its second temple form and in, in its rabbinic form then, Judaism was simply evolving roughly in line with other Mediterranean religious movements. Everyone used to sacrifice publicly in temples as the basic form of cult. That was the form that we see in the Bronze Age all around the Mediterranean and survives right through classical antiquity. But in late antiquity, there was a strong movement away from sacrifice and toward the more private congregation or even the lone religious specialist. In this sense, rabbinic Judaism is of a piece with Christianity and even Mithraism, new religious movements of the first centuries of our era, and with Manichaeism. Manichaeism, though it's unique in its religious caste system of regular Manichaeans and priestly ascetic class, was also part of the broad move toward congregational worship centered primarily around holy people rather than holy places. So, this is one change that occurs into the period we call the rabbinic period. Meanwhile, and here comes the textual part of this story, groups of highly erudite Jews, notably in Palestine and in the Parthian and then Sasanian region of Babylon, in the first two centuries CE, got together and began to compile a huge mass of oral traditions of interpretation of the basic scriptures into written form. The basic scriptures are the Tanakh, what Christians know roughly as the Old Testament, but 
there's a huge body of oral tradition of how to interpret and read these. These Jewish scribe scholars, traditionally known as the Tanaim, wrote this oral hermeneutical tradition down over the course of about five generations in the first two centuries of our era. And this written record of 200 years plus of hermeneutical activity, interpretation of the Old Testament texts, is known as Mishnah, or even Mishnah Torah, as this curious hybrid oral written document has the status of, well, a kind of scripture in rabbinic Judaism. So, by the beginning of the third century, we have the Mishnah. None of this seems to have registered much on the radar of non-Jews, but it's what modern scholars have tried to reconstruct from the story of the development of Judaism. Once this occurred, the next phase was the Talmuds. The Talmuds are massive, truly massive bodies of commentary, which talk about the Torah, the Tanakh, but also include the Mishnah within them and comment on Mishnah. So <laughs> this whole body of uh, interpretation is eventually collected into these gigantic works of commentary on commentary on commentary. And these are the Talmuds. The older Talmudic compilation is called the Jerusalem Talmud or the Talmud Yerushalmi. This was compiled by the 4th century in Galilee. The Babylonian Talmud, and this is the one people usually are referring to when they just say the Talmud. It's the one, I guess, which has sort of become a bit more used. This Talmud was compiled by about the year 500. But by the nature of the document, glosses and interpretations continue to be added afterwards. So this really is a living document. This is the basic scriptural foundation of rabbinic Judaism. Torah, Mishnah Torah, and Talmud. It gets more complex than that, but those, I think, for the non-specialist, are the basics. Now, uh, this is happening throughout late antiquity. So, behind all the other political and social and religious stuff we're talking about, at the same time is going on this extraordinary scribal stroke rabbinic activity of putting these texts into order and over a very long period, starting with the writing down of the Mishnah in the first, second centuries, right the way to the end of the fourth century, compiling these uh, Talmudic documents. So how do we take stock of what has happened to Jewry between the destruction of the temple and say the end of the fourth century? We have these sorts of academies of rabbis. These are trained teachers and expounders of Jewish scripture and law who gradually, on the one hand, come to the forefront of the new Jewish way of life. They sort of come to replace the old temple priest hierarchy on the social level. You don't have a temple anymore. You have the rabbi. Groups of these rabbis over generations compile a massive scriptural and parascriptural canon, which covers law of every sort, but also, crucially, engages with theology in creative and complex ways, opening doors for all kinds of speculation, which might be called mystical, and also uses very interesting alphanumeric hermeneutical keys for understanding the meanings of scripture, such that you might say that esoteric interpretation methods are totally mainstream, allowable, and kind of part of the fabric of how rabbinic Judaism functions. Then these rabbis over generations proceed to study and interpret this massive body of text, 
and crucially, to add their own interpretations on the fly. And this remains roughly the pattern which has survived until today in traditional Jewish communities. The rabbi, if he is to be a good rabbi, and I know there are female rabbis in some groups now, but we're not talking about those kinds of Jews. We're talking about the old school Jews for whom the rabbi has to be a bloke. If he is to be a good rabbi, he will have spent years studying this massive body of lore, the earliest layer of which the books of Moses, the the prophets, and so on, reaches all the way back from the Bronze Age um, with later books extending right through the Second Temple period. Then there is the Mishnah, which is oral tradition, again, going back very far, but written down in the first two centuries of our era, more or less. And finally, the Talmuds, codifying the lore of influential groups of rabbis in late antiquity, some of whom, like Ravi Akiva, played very important roles in the anti-Roman struggles and so on. And this process is going on throughout the background in late antiquity, in the Roman and Sasanian realms. And this little summary brings us right up to the modern day. For Orthodox Jews, uh, Hasidim, and other more old-school sects, the rabbi is meant to know all his traditional material inside and out. And then when you ask him a question regarding some matter of everyday life, which was totally unknown to the late antique Jewish sages who compiled the Talmuds, say, you want to know if it's permissible to use your mobile phone on the Sabbath, right? There were no mobile phones, obviously, in late antiquity. Your rabbi can answer that question. So he becomes, in effect, the living voice of this massive body of teaching. Now, a different rabbi might give a different answer to the same question. The consensus in rabbinic Judaism is never perfect, and it's not meant to be. Judaism never went down the ecumenical council route that Christianity did, and we'll discuss that in part two. So in fact, the idea of an Orthodox Jew is a very, very recent one. And it's really the product of a kind of emulation of Christianity, which is utterly foreign to the majority of Jewish history. Rabbinic Judaism, like Islam, is much better considered in terms of an orthopraxis rather than an orthodoxy. So that is a very brief recap of some key developments in Judaism, which brings us into the rabbinic period, where we shall be dwelling for a long stretch of this podcast. It's oversimplified And it's not the whole picture by any stretch, gentle listeners. But what I hope, at least, is that it isn't actively wrong as far as it goes. Now, what about those Christians and their ecumenical councils? Well, it's back to imperial politics. The Jews, while they were, as we say, a semi-protected tradition within the Roman world, never entered into Roman politics, except when Romans decided a particular group of Jewish rebels had to be exterminated. And the Romans were notoriously fair in this regard. They exterminated populations perceived as foreign on a strictly equal basis. So they didn't single out the Jews by any means. Christians, on the other hand, really were seen as a pernicious antisocial enemy within by many Romans, were persecuted as such from time to time, though never with the sustained levels of martyrdom that the Christian martyr literature would have you believe. But then they took over the empire. In fact, in the year Iamblichus probably died, the year 325 CE, the Council of Nicaea took place, and Christianity was well on its way to being the official, supposedly universal, imperial religious creed. What the hell is going on there? How is that even possible in real life? 
Next time in part two of this episode, we shall survey and discuss some crucial background which might help us answer the really, really interesting but totally insoluble question, how on earth did this happen? How and why did a fringe Jewish movement of the late Second Temple grow to become an imperial religion of a completely new stamp unlike anything the world had ever seen before? Join us then, and in the meantime, keep your head down and avoid any and all persecutions, pogroms, and centralized programs of ideologically motivated thought control by staying esoteric. <laughs>